Coming up on Influencing Entrepreneurs. No one knew what was going to happen. I remember that Friday, you know, in March that we sent everybody home and being a, you know, a payment software company, there's a lot of security around what we do. And uh, we were really concerned about like, you know, can we actually operate our business in a work from home environment? And then, you know, within like 30 days in March of 2000, we figured it out, right? right? Because we had to. This season of Influencing Entrepreneurs is brought to you by the Entrepreneurs Organization of Charlotte and Spiracle Media. After years of teaching entrepreneurship and consulting business owners, I realized that true knowledge comes from the wins and losses of those entrepreneurs. These are the stories of those business leaders. I'm Casmer Ward, and this is Influencing Entrepreneurs. Today, we're here with Michael Prager with Avid Exchange. Uh, thank you for being here. Yeah, no, appreciate you having being here, and uh, it's great to do this in the city of Charlotte. In doing the research uh, on you, you took Avid Exchange public last year with an IPO, and I've watched a lot of the interviews, and I, I really thought, like, how are we going to structure this? And I really, the question was, what does Michael Prager have to say that he hasn't had a chance to say yet? And I'd really like to start off with the structure of the lessons learned along the way to get to the IPO. <laughs> so it's been really an interesting journey. Um, you know, kind of, you know, my career has been, uh, you know, one that's been a combination of entrepreneurism and, um, you know, founding a couple of companies uh, combined with um, starting my career as a venture capitalist in Boston. Um, but as it relates to Avid Exchange, uh, you know, it's not an overnight success. We've been at this over 20 years. We got started in uh, April 2000, uh, right in, you know, the heyday of the, you know, dot-com meltdown. But one of the things that, you know, I think was really remarkable is um, if you would have told us in, you know, kind of March of 2000 about, you know, kind of how the next two years were going to unfold. And as part of that, you know, we didn't be a public company, um, you know, we would have never, you know, believe the story, right? So in a lot of ways, uh, you know, COVID was, uh, you know, a catalyst for a lot of things. Um, and certainly for us, it was, you know, kind of, you know, part of, you know, putting a kind of punctuation mark on a remarkable journey uh, to date. But it's, a uh, you know, kind of the, you know, end of maybe one chapter of being a private company and kind of a 20 year journey as a private company. And now uh, a whole nother, you know, um, you know, set of chapters related to kind of our, you know, life as a public company and continue our growth journey and, and really becoming that dominant, you know, kind of industry player that we believe we can be. So going to an IPO, like, of course, there's the 20 year journey to get yeah. there. You don't work all 20 years to get to the IPO, but it also seems we hear about the IPO, the IPO happens, your public company, we're yeah. done, right? What really, there's probably a four to five year path to the point of the IPO. So when does that decision uh, come into play? And then what are those next steps? Yeah. So a a little bit about, you know, kind of that journey and kind of what led up to the IPO is uh, so when we started the business in 2000, we were very focused on being, um, you know, a software company providing software to automate the accounts payable process. And we started actually in one industry vertical being real estate. Um, and uh, one of our first customers was Daniel Levine uh, here at Levine Properties in Charlotte. And that's, uh, you know, kind of how we started uh, the business. Um, that led then to adding multiple verticals over time. Um, but in 2010 timeframe, customers started asking us to uh, kind of extend our solution set to help them with the payment process. And at the beginning, when I started hearing it, I'm like, 
that's odd. Why are they asking us as a software company help with their payments? And then after hearing it in a couple of user conferences, I brought a group of about 30 of our customers to Charlotte uh, to try to get to the bottom of, you know, why they were asking us to solve this problem. And then, you know, when they explained it um, and uh, we had a passionate, you know, CFO from one of our customers in Seattle stand up and he said, Mike, you need to solve for, you know, my problem. And I knew, oh, well, geez, you know, this is going to be uh, challenging because, um, you know, every customer or every company has a set of customers that kind of challenge them in a good way to be good. And he's, he's been one of those for us. Uh, and he said, well, we have about 300 office buildings scattered across the country. Uh, we work with about 26 banks because of where mortgages are. And uh, we operate with about 325 different um, operating accounts. And because of acquisitions, we're running six or seven different accounting systems. And we want to run one bill payment process across our entire company. And so when he said that, um, I immediately you know, got it. I'm like, you're right. A single bank can't solve that problem. Um, and so, um, you know, they became kind of the poster child for what we were trying to solve on the payment side. Uh, in 2012, then we released um, our first launch of uh, the Avid Pay Network. You Which, know, again, out. that's that's a 12-year journey right there. Right. <laughs> that's a 12-year journey. And then uh, since we launched... Uh, um, you know, that in 2012, um, you know, for the next 10 years, uh, we grew on average by over 30% a year for 10 plus years. And so um, that um, then, you know, I'd say really kind of heightened the type of company uh, in terms of market opportunity we thought we could become. Um, in 2015, I clearly saw that this is now's the right time to really invest in the market opportunity. Up until 2015, we only raised, um, you know, um, about $10 million in total capital. And a lot of that was done through um, angel investors. Some of the uh, North Carolina angel networks um, uh, participated. You know, we formed a partnership with Bain Capital Ventures. Uh, Matt Harris, who runs the fintech practice at Bain Capital, is just a, kind of a superstar in uh, both venture investing, uh, you know, just an all-star board member. And, uh, and, and real quick, what's the difference from having investors that are angel investors to having uh, uh, much. Yeah. Well, we went from, well, well, the beginning was, it's just, you know, access to capital. So, um, you know, when we, um, you know, we raised just under $10 million in our first uh, 15 years in 2015, Matt led a $250 million round. Right. Um, so dramatically changed kind of the capitalization of the business. How about the rules and the interaction you're having? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we um, had been a company um, that I think always operated ahead of um, you know, um, our maturity, even when there was no reason to do it, we, you know, uh, put some, you know, governance into the business in terms of how we operated. Um, one of my um, early board members that was really helpful is Jim Hausman, um, who was a CFO of CT Communications, uh, which is old, the old Concord telephone company. I really tapped into Jim and he, uh, being a you know, public company CFO, brought a lot of those disciplines to us uh, really early on. And so, um, you know, well ahead of our time, you know, we had a formalized audit committee and some governance committees and things like that in the business. So I'd say, you know, we were, um, you know, pretty mature for, you know, the size company we were as we were growing. And, and but what uh, Matt did was really, um, you know, help me then to kind of formulate uh, not only kind of the right profile of investor for the next, you know, uh, set of growth objectives that we had, but also the board. And that, uh, so as part of that, uh, round that Matt led in 2015, uh, we brought in uh, Nigel Morris, which is uh, kind of an icon and founder of Capital One, uh, runs a fintech fund in uh, Washington, D.C. called QED. 
So are you completely at ease as these professionals are coming in? Like not professionals, but these bigger names are coming in? Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, like, you know, uh, what they were doing is what I was doing uh, kind of early in my career yeah. uh, in Boston. And, uh, and they all said, you know, uh, the same thing pretty much you know, what can we do to help? And uh, I gave him a list of things related to, you know, I was looking for kind of talent, you know, board members, you know, thinking about, you know, M&A opportunities, uh, things of that nature. Um, and then they all leave. And then, you know, like, you know, six months later or three months later, they'll check in saying, are you ready to do, you know, uh, financing a deal yet? And, um, and but Matt was different uh, from the standpoint from um, pretty much, uh, you know, every month, month in, month out for over a year, he did something for me. Um, he, you know, helped us with uh, talent ideas. Uh, and so he and I developed a really good relationship about, you know, just uh, working together. Um, and, uh, and so it was really natural when we did our deal with him in 2015. But then he wrote me, you know, we just really assembled an all-star board um, in addition to kind of uh, Nigel Morris. Uh, also brought in Hans Morris, who is uh, uh, president of Visa when they went public. Uh, and now he runs a fintech fund in New York City. And we just really rounded out the board with a really talented group. Um, and then that led to really kind of that run up to be a public company. Was there a moment or like a, a aha moment, like this is the time to go public? We really felt that, you know, kind of the next kind of financing event for us, um, you know, uh, could be as a public company. And we started, you know, um, you know, with some, you know, IPO readiness, uh, you know, kind of work streams to, you know, begin preparing. Um, and then, you know, March of 2000 uh, happened and, uh, and, you know, no one knew what was going to happen. I remember that Friday, you know, in March that we sent everybody home and being a, you know, a payment software company, there's a lot of security around what we do. Right. And uh, we were really concerned about like, you know, can we actually operate our business in a work from home environment yeah. with all the security parameters and everything else? And uh, like everything else, it's like, you know, um, you know, one of my favorite sayings by actually, you know, Nigel, you know, um, as a founder of Capital One, he's like, you know, never get a, you know, let a good crisis go to waste. Um, and, uh, and to me, it's like a lot of the innovation uh, happens in a crisis scenario yeah. because like we had talked about, you know, being more flexible with a lot of our engineering staff and things like that over, you know, the last few years. But we could never like figure out how to like get the security right, things like that for them to do, you know, a lot of their development in a work from home scenario. And then, you know, within like 30 days you know, in March of 2000, we figured it out, right? Because right? we had to. And not only did you figure it out, things probably even got better. Like you got rid of the stuff that. Yeah. You know, we just, you know, kind of like we reimagined into like a new way of working. Right. Um, and um uh, and so like everybody else moved to the work from home environment, so did we, um, you know, at the time about 1500 teammates uh, moved to a work from home environment. And uh, and so we really didn't know how, you know, it was going to impact our business. And then, you know, um, you know, about, you know, 90 days into it, uh, we recognized that, listen, like this is actually going to be a catalyst for our business uh, in terms of, you know, kind of a tailwind rather, rather than a headwind. And the catalyst being... What opportunity? Um, well, the opportunity, right? Because it was a catalyst for adoption. Um, and what we found is that, you know, having people, um, when we back up, you, you kind of for that, one of our biggest barriers was, you know, getting, you know, CFOs, controllers, finance leaders to be comfortable putting all their financial data in the cloud, right? And then all of a sudden now, it's like it had to be in the cloud, right? right? Like almost overnight. Um, and so... Um, you know, so that was really kind of catalyst for our business in terms of, you know, supporting our customer base. 
Um, as well as what we found is, uh, you know, we make most of our money on transactions going through our platform. And so um, if there's no volume, there's no revenue. And what we really, uh, you know, learned very quickly was that middle market segment that we serve. And today we have over 8,000 middle market companies here in the U.S. We're really resilient. And for the most part, their businesses held up just fine. Um, and in a lot of cases, they had kind of the, you know, the you know, same you know, kind of growth tailwinds as we had, that their businesses were actually thriving. Um, and so we actually, you know, saw some degradation of volume in kind of Q2 of 2000. But by the end of 2000, by the end of the year, pretty much all the volume came back to pre, you know, kind of, you know, pandemic levels. Um, and, uh, and that was really remarkable to see the resiliency of that middle market customer base. Um, and then certainly, you know, there was a lot of catalyst for us. We knew that kind of the next step in the process was to be a public company. Um, let's kind of execute it. And in a lot of ways, um, it became a great um, opportunity for both, you know, Avid Exchange teammates, the city of Charlotte, because of COVID, um, we were able to negotiate with NASDAQ to do the first, um, you know, listing day where they ran the full IPO desk from, you know, opening bell to closing bell outside of New York City. And, um, and they came down to Charlotte and uh, turned, you know, the Avid Exchange office like into a movie set. Um, and, uh, and we executed, you know, the IPO, um, you know, from our campus at the Avid Exchange Music Factory and, you know, down the street here in Uptown Charlotte. Thanks for watching and stay tuned for part two of this episode. Influencing Entrepreneurs is brought to you by the Entrepreneurs Organization of Charlotte and Spherical Media. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash or visit kasmerward.com.